Well, good morning, church. As we uh, are getting started here, we'll dismiss the kids out to their class. And as they're rolling out of here, I just say Jenny and I were in Florida uh, last week for a three-day conference. We missed being here. And let me, oh, let me rephrase that. A three-day conference. And some of you say, hey, how was your vacation? It's like, I don't know. Uh, I didn't go on a vacation. It was a conference. Um, It was sort of a flavor of a vacation, sort of. Um, But when you're in Florida in 84-degree weather and you're sitting in a hotel that's 64 uh, with the AC cranked up, it didn't, you know... It was nice to jump outside and warm up every now and then. We did have a little free time. Um, But they bring, basically the Fellowship of Christian Athletes bring their staff together once every three years. So 1,600 staff members and their spouses came together in one spot to be refueled, refreshed, and get refocused. Incredible teaching and worship. Um, So we had that opportunity uh, last uh, weekend, basically three days to do that. So um, I'm telling you, I was writing notes everywhere, sort of fired up, and it's like, Okay, I'm going to whittle this down to 30 minutes. Good luck. Um, but I'm, I'm very thankful for uh, this church because when we're gone, I discover how much I miss it. And I don't know, maybe you have those moments when you, you don't miss something until you don't have it anymore. And that was one of those moments last week. like, man, I miss the church. Definitely was praying for you. I know Pastor Landon uh, did well. And he, as I said today, um, down with a friend. His friend's uh, father passed away. Suddenly it's one of his best friends. And so he went to spend some time with his friend in that time of mourning. Um, so you can be praying for him as he travels back today. Uh, we are going to be in a sermon series here again called Miracles. Uh, we'll be wrapping it up here in a couple weeks. Um, so, But we've got a couple more miracles I want to share with you. And I just pray that as uh, we've been going through this series, you've been encouraged by what Jesus did and what he's still doing today. And if... Um, for some reason, you're doubting what God can do. Uh, doubt no longer. Doubt no longer. Our God can do amazing things. Um, I want to show you a picture here. This is a process of called refining. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the process of refining gold or silver before. I didn't know much about it, so I did a little research, figured it out, and um, to understand how gold and silver. Um, they exist in nature in combination with other minerals and, and, and other rocks. So there's different processes used to separate out and purify those metals from all the other stones and minerals and rocks that are, surround them. And it's called a refining process. So basically you take a large amount of these, um, whatever, chunks of gold or silver, and your first step is to put them in a crucible and to heat them up to a temperature where the gold melts, which is about 1,102 degrees. It's pretty hot. Okay. So as it's melting, the material that's melted, they add borax or soda ash to that, and they stir it in. And that causes uh, these metals to then sort of start to begin a separation process. The liquid's poured into a mold, and the larger uh, impurities rise to the top, which is called dross or, a, or a, um, a slag. And the denser gold or silver sinks to the bottom. What they do then is then when it's cooled off, the gold is broken off in that top slag or dross, and then they put it back in, they heat it back up, remelt it, pour it back in again, and repeat that process to the purity is about 95% pure gold. So again, I'm not an expert in the refining process with, with gold and silver, but I think it's pretty interesting how they do this, because I believe it's a process that God does within us as well, a refining process where I believe he takes our lives and he will heat up our lives 
in the midst of trouble or maybe some kind of challenge. He heats it up so that he can separate out those impurities and scrape off that bad in our life and then maybe reheat and do again. Why would God do that? Because our God is a holy God. And I don't know if we can fully understand what it means to be worshiping a holy God. I don't think we have an understanding that when we read a certain scripture, let me read this to you from 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter said, So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. See, we have a holy God, and he says, I want you to be holy as I am holy. The problem is, I don't know if we fully understand what it means to worship a holy God. Do we really know what holiness looks like? And see, there are times when we experience blessings and good things, and it causes us to want to just shout out to God, like, God, you're awesome. Now, in that last song we sang, I don't know if you saw the waterfall in the back and creation, Anytime I'm, I'm out in creation, whether it's an ocean, a mountain, or woods, or wherever it may be, sunset, sunrise, I can't help but think God is pretty awesome. And that, those are just blessings that come, a natural blessing. And there's other great things that happen in my life where you open up a card, an envelope, somebody says something, or somebody does something for you. It's like, man, God is so good, right? Those blessings draw us near to this holy God. But there are also times in which the process of drawing close to a holy God may come through discipline and trials, a refining process. Those times when the heat gets turned up in our lives and God uses those heated moments to purify us from the things in life, from the sin in life, the darkness in life, to say, I want your life to be holy. You can't have a pure, holy life with those impurities within you. So those moments of purification and discipline like that spiritual refining are meant to remove that sinfulness to make us more holy. There's some scripture I want to read to you. We'll put up on the screen. Isaiah 48.10, Zechariah 13.9, and Malachi 3.3, it says this, I have refined you, but not as silver is refined. Rather, I have refined you in the furnace of suffering. Zechariah said, I will bring that group to the fire and make them pure. I will refine them like silver and purify them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say, these are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. Malachi 3.3 3 says, He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. See, as a, as a human, I sit here and it's, 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 it's hard to understand God's refining process. Because he's the eternal, holy God. And I'm a mere human. But he's got this process, this refining process that says, I want to make you more holy like me. And we can't fully understand it, maybe even accept it. We can't see the whole picture of life. We're only basing things off of human standards and our simplicity and our limited view of life. So it's hard to understand it. But God supernaturally would do what he needs to do in order to reach us in our limited human existence. He will do that. And in this next miracle that we're going to look at, I believe it's more than just Jesus walking on water, defying gravity. I think that this miracle was intended 
to deepen his relationship with his disciples. A continued transformation in their lives, which is a miracle in itself. A refining process that helps remove doubt and fear and strengthen their trust. So that through that process, they will become more holy like their holy God. So in your Bibles, if you would, open up your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. They're on the back there. We'll have one bring it to you if you need a Bible. John, chapter 6. John chapter 6, starting in verse 16, is where we're going to begin. John 6, 16. And you need to understand, this story is also told in the book of Matthew and in the book of Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, called the Gospels, those are all the stories of Jesus Christ, written by four different authors. Three of them share the same story, different perspectives. We're going to look at how John describes it, and we'll look at the others as well. John chapter 6. Verse 16, it starts off saying, That evening, Jesus' disciples went down to shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus hadn't come back, they got into the boat, headed across the lake toward Capernaum. Now the gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, share the same story, obviously again from a different perspective. But if we were to compare the story, we're going to discover that, you know why his disciples went across the lake? To get to the other side, right? It's not a joke, but that's where they're going, right? But they went there because Jesus told them to. If you look at Matthew 6, 45, it says, immediately after this, now wait a minute, after this is what? After Jesus got done feeding the 5,000 plus people, okay? Huge crowd, they feed them all, 5,000 plus women and children, they're saying there's there over 10, 12,000, right? Okay. Immediately after that, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake. See, they went across the Sea of Galilee because Jesus said so. Go. And they went. Why? (laughs) Well, Jesus said to, but why did Jesus want them to go without him? Now, here's some possible reasons. Maybe the crowds were getting so fired up, so puffed up, like, oh, Jesus is awesome. It's it's like that rock star mentality. And she's like, oh, not ready to be labeled yet. So we need to settle things down. So why don't you guys head across the lake, okay? Maybe it's because Jesus said, I need my quiet time with my heavenly father. So he wanted to go up and you can't have a quiet time when you got all your disciples around and all these people around. Maybe that's why he sent them off. Maybe he sent them off because, you know what? I need to deepen my disciples. I need to purify them. I need to refine them. There's some things I need to sort of scrape off in their life. So here comes the refining process. We're going to send them off, right? Maybe it was all three reasons. Maybe there's another reason. I don't know because it doesn't say exactly why. And here's the thing you need to understand. There's a lot of things that happen in our life and we don't know why. You will never know why on this side of eternity. But we do know this. Jesus knew what was going to happen. And sometimes that's all we got to do is know that. Jesus knows. And I trust that. It's so hard sometimes, right? But he knows all things. And Jesus knows that he is placing his disciples into a position in which they are going to feel helpless. He knows it. He already knows what's going to happen hours from then. And we know that as they crossed the lake, it was dark. And some of those fishermen were, or disciples were expert fishermen. They knew what it's like to fish on the lake, the conditions on the lake. They know what it's like to be in the darkness. It didn't bother them one bit. It was routine. Let me ask you this. How many times have you woken up in the morning and you know you've got a routine day ahead and then the storms break loose? Been there? These guys are going to do something routine. Everyday thing. 
But nothing in life is ever routine or easy, is it? So let's read on verse 18. John chapter 6, verse 18. Soon a gale swept down upon them, and the sea grew very rough. Have you ever heard this old saying, red in the morning, sailors, warning, red at night? Sailors, lie. you've heard it. Okay, yeah. Uh, for the younger generation, you're going, I have no clue what they're all talking about, right? It's something our parents or grandparents told us. Red at night, sailors delight. Red in the morning, sailors warning. I mean, you can sort of predict the weather according to the skies, right? Well, we have those sayings. We have radars. We have satellites. We've got Neil Groff on Facebook. We've got all kinds of ways to determine the weather, right? So if you don't know Neil, just check him out sometime when you're wondering what's going to snow or not, okay? Um, but some of our best efforts at figuring out the weather, though, is still a 50-50 shot, Right? Uh, despite advanced technology, Doppler radars, and everything else that we have, guess what? We don't know what the weather is going to be like. It is powerful and unpredictable as ever. Agree? And not only is it unpredictable, it's uncontrollable. Did you ever try to shut, shut off a storm? You can't, can you? Can't do that. We can't stop it. All we can do is what? Talk about it. Oh, did you hear what happened in that storm? That's all we can do. We can't control it, can't predict it. All we do is talk about it. And that's where these guys are. The Sea of Galilee is well known for its storms. It's just 600 feet below sea level. And so when the winds come moving in off of the mountains and the air cools, it rushes down that hillside, churns the lake, and it creates an incredible storm. And it happened often. So here they are, heading into these winds, making little progress, working hard, going nowhere really fast. What's going on in their minds? As we've talked about this story before, we said there's probably certain things. Doubt, fear, curiosity. Why would Jesus tell us to come out of here? Didn't he know this was going to happen to us? What are we going to do next? Desperation. We're going to die. We're going to drown. Right? Does he really care? You know, here's the thing. Jesus cared about 5,000 plus strangers to feed them, right? So if he cares about the strangers, don't you think he would care about his own disciples? Absolutely. What about us? Do you ever wonder if Jesus cares about you? I imagine we do. We never ask this question when things are going good, right? When things are going really good for you, you're not walking around saying, man, I wonder if Jesus cares. We don't ask that question. But when life gets rough, then we're like, I wonder if Jesus cares. Where's God at? We ask those kinds of questions. See, fear and worry try to get a hold on us. And they try to choke us so we can't breathe in truth. That's what fear and worry do. It distracts us and it says, hey, look how bad this is. And it diverts us from truth. And what we've seen to be true. And here's the thing. Jesus can multiply food. He can make the blind see. He can heal the sick and the lame. He's able to turn water to wine. How can he take care of this? Well, we know he's pretty powerful, right? In Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, and Matthew chapter 8, 23 to 27, there's another story that takes place in chronological order happening before this story ever took place. And here's what happens. There's another sea or storm on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are in the boat, okay? But listen, listen. This time Jesus is in the boat with them. So now Jesus is in the boat with his disciples and the storm comes. But this time Jesus is sleeping in the boat. 
And they woke him up and they even said to Jesus, they said these words, don't you care? Which disciple, you wonder, you ever wonder which disciple said that? They were probably all thinking, it's like, who's going to say it? I don't know what you say. It was probably Peter because Peter always said things, right? Okay. Don't you care? Now remember, this story took place before the one we're currently reading in John 6, okay? And you fast forward to the current status. They're in a boat again, and they've forgotten their previous cruise on the Galilee. Have they already forgotten? Hey, once we were in a storm before? Yeah, and we woke Jesus up. We said, don't you care? And he goes, yeah, I care. And he, boom, storm stopped, right? But here's the thing. This story, this time, Jesus is not in the boat. So I'm sure there had to be a little bit more fear going on. So the question is, does Jesus care? Does he care? Yes. Absolutely yes. Anytime you want to ask that question, write it down. Just please put right behind it, yes. Whether you feel it or not, truth is, yes. Yes. He cares about newlyweds and wedding parties. He cares about sick children and worried parents. He cares about crippled and forgotten. He cares about the hungry. He cares about the blind. He cares about the lame. He cares. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this. Give all your worries. Oh, I'm talking about But not my financial worries, because I can handle that, right? Not my relationship worries, because I can handle that. I'm pretty good with relationships. Not, no, what do you say? Give all. In Greek, that means all, okay? That's pretty, pretty tough one there. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Let's go back to John chapter 6, verse 19. John chapter 6, 19, it says, They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. They were glorified. They were happy. They were excited, right? They were terrified. They were terrified. Think through that. They've been rowing for six to eight hours against the wind. They should have gotten further, but because of the winds and the storms, they've not progressed very far across this lake. And they're only about halfway Across three or three and a half miles, maybe, maybe four. It's three in the morning. It's dark. It's stormy. They're frustrated. They're afraid. And in despite in the place where they're at, a moment of defeat, all of a sudden they see something coming across the water. Mark six forty eight says this. He saw they were in serious trouble, rowing hard, struggling against the wind and waves. About three in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. He intended to go past them. Now, you might want to go back and look that scripture up again. That's Mark 6, 48. Because I love that last part that got added on there. And he intended to go past them. Think that one through. He saw they're in serious trouble from the top of the mountain where he was praying. It's dark, three in the morning, stormy. They're three miles out on the lake, right? And he sees them. First of all, let that give you comfort. Rowing hard, struggling against the wind. At three in the morning, Jesus comes toward them, walking on the water. And he intended to go past them. See ya. Faster than you. And I'm walking. That, to me, is amazing. But also makes me say, why was he going to go past them? I don't know. But Jesus watched the disciples as they rowed across the lake. And he had his eye on them the whole time. You see, he had them in his will, in his plan. And during their frustration and fear, it gets worse because now they think they're seeing things. It's dark, but yet something glowing or obvious something, or maybe, I don't know how, whether um, 
the moon popped out between the clouds, but they were able to see something walking on water. They thought it was a ghost. They were terrified when they saw Jesus because they didn't recognize him. Mark chapter 6 and that story tells us they thought it was a ghost. They knew Jesus commanded them to get out and go. Jesus told us to go do this, right? But without any direct help from Jesus. So they're probably a little surprised to see Jesus coming at them. Didn't see that coming, right? Now remember, Jesus commanded them to do something. Get in a boat, go across the lake. He commanded that. Let me ask you something. Please think this through. Do you think Jesus commands us to do something that will end in tragedy? Do you think Jesus will command us to do something that will end in tragedy? Does the God of this universe, whom you believe loves you with an immense amount of love, purposely put you to death? I'm going to say no, unless it glorifies his purpose. Which, that doesn't make sense. But see, again, it's tragedy in our eyes, but in the eternal eyes of God, it's glory. And that's hard to understand and comprehend. But I know this, if Jesus is asking you to do something, regardless of how scary it is, you do it. You trust him. Do you remember that song, Trust and Obey? Oh, we used to sing that every, well, not every Sunday. Every Sunday we sang, Just As I Am. Okay? Then every other Sunday I think we sang, Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I didn't get that song as a teenager, as a junior higher, as a kid. We just sang it every other Sunday, right? Now that I'm older, I get it. Trust and obey. I trust you, Jesus. I'll get in the boat and I'll go across the lake. Doesn't make sense, but I believe you and I trust you, right? Oh, here's something else to think about while they're in that boat. Remember that it just happened earlier, right before this story? They just fed the 5,000 plus and they had 12 baskets of leftover food. So I'm imagining, okay, we probably don't have verification of this, but I'm imagining that when they got done with, they had the 12 baskets, they probably didn't leave them on the shore. They probably put them in the boat with them. In that boat, they've got that miracle, that reminder, the power of Jesus is sitting right in the boat with them. A lot of times we have reminders all around us of what God can do, even in the midst of our dark times and tumultuous times and stormy times. Look around. You'll be reminded that God's done amazing things in your life already, and you've already taken your eyes off of those to doubt what God can do now. Put your eyes back on what God's done. Verse 20. Let's look at verse 20. But he called to them and he said, Don't be afraid. I am here. I am here. Think about what it meant to be here. Jesus shows off some incredible power in this, in this miracle. It's just amazing. He was up on that mountain, and he saw them, and he came to them, and he reminded them, I'm here. I've always been here, but now you're physically seeing me. I am here. And he trekked across that water, three and a half miles. Now, if you're walking at three miles per hour, we're talking about a 70-minute miracle. Okay, I don't know if the waves were crashing on him or it was just a red carpet rollout where it was flat as he walked on the water, but three and a half miles he walked across from what we understand in reading this story. That 
is amazing. That is a miracle, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of the, uh, the pond skater lizard. It's also been nicknamed the Jesus Christ lizard. And, I, and the reason why you can YouTube it, not now, but you can YouTube this, and you'll see this lizard literally walk across the top of the water. Well, run across the water as it tries to escape predators or chase down food. It's got these webbed feet that helps it stay on the surface of the water as it runs across super quick. It's pretty fun to watch, okay? But that, you know, we can come up with maybe how it does that. But if I was to do that as a human being, to do what the pond skater does, proportionally, I would have to run 67 miles per hour to get across water without sinking. 67 miles per hour. I believe Usain Bolt is at 28 miles per hour is the fastest recorded. 67. That ain't happened. I'm more like 2.7, okay? (laughs) Not that fast, okay? And when I think about this, we always sit there and think, I wonder how I did it. We we try to explain away everything. Can I just say this? Sometimes the miracles of Jesus are just unexplainable. Stop trying to explain them. Just believe them. And he was there. Jesus said this, I am here. It is I. And for Jesus, it was enough to announce his presence. He was with his disciples. He would meet them in the midst of their frustration and fear. And then in that frustration and fear, Jesus comes to bring supernatural comfort to his disciples. His presence gave them what they needed in an unexpected way. If you can imagine, first it was surprise and fear. And then it was a realization, this is Jesus. He just walked across the lake. He is incredible. I love this guy, right? Maybe some of them are still a little upset, right? Why would you put us in this situation? Jesus is like, because you need to be refined. There's some impurities in your life, some doubt, some fear. You need to have that removed. I'm helping you in the process right now, right? Now, John doesn't record this. Matthew does. So if you go to the book of Matthew uh, 14, 28, and you read the this, this same story, in that story, it's recorded that Peter says, hey, Jesus, if it's you, can I come out with you? So in that story that's recorded, Peter goes out on the water, takes his eyes off Jesus, sinks, picks him back up, and they get back in the boat together, right? But John doesn't record that. My first thought was, John, man, why did you record that? Because in the context of the story, I don't, think, I don't think that was the focus. I mean, that was a neat thing. But guess who got all the glory, or at least who got all the attention in that story? Peter did, right? John goes, no, I want the focus to be on Jesus. I want the focus to be on the one who walked on the water, not the one who was sinking in the water. I want the testimony to point to God, not to you. And that's the thing about a testimony. Each of us have a testimony. And that is, you've probably heard this before, if you've gone through a test, you've got a testimony. And the thing about a testimony when somebody shares their story is, look what happened in my life. Look what God did in my life. Look where I am now. And here's the thing. If that person gives the testimony and it's all about them and their wound and what they did, and God's not getting glory, then that's the wrong focus. The focus should always be on the one who healed the wound, God. The focus should be on God who gave you that now testimony. You look back and it's like, boy, that was a rough thing. But you know what? It wasn't about me. It was about him. And I believe John is like, I don't want you to look at the one who sank in the water. I want your folks to be on the one who walked on the water. 
And in this story, in this story, disciples battled frustration, fear, doubt, and doubt is just another means of taking our eyes off of God, allowing our circumstances to drag our theology down. Doubt occurs when we allow circumstances to stand between us and God. See, here's what happens. Here's your circumstances going on, and when they come between you and God, guess what? You will struggle. And I believe Jesus was saying, no, this is the way it is. Here's your faith, or here's your circumstance, and here am I. I should be in between you and your circumstances. That's the way it should be. Faith is putting God between you and your circumstances. It's not denying reality. Here's the reality. It's there. The rough times of my life are here. But the truth is, my God's bigger than what this is right here. And when we start allowing our circumstances to become bigger than God, we are going to struggle. God is always bigger than the circumstances. Consider the miracles. Water to wine. The sick being healed. The lame walking the blind being able to see, the feeding of the 5,000. Go back to the Old Testament miracles. Maybe remember something as simple as an axe head falling into water in the river and they can't find it. And it floats so that they can. A miracle, right? Or Elijah and the stew, the poison stew, and they made it healthy again so they could eat it. Or the Red Sea parting. If we were like in the Olympics and we were to range up numbers and judge every single miracle, man, which miracle was better? Which miracle was better? We'd be judging miracles all day long as to which, better, which was the better miracle, right? But here's the thing. It's not about the size of the miracle. It's the fact that it was, it was a miracle. That God acted. And whether it was simple or simple as I care about that wedding party or I care about your child who's dying. Regardless of what it is, God says, I care. Look at verse 21. Then they were eager to let him in the boat and immediately they arrived at their destination. Love that verse. Multiple reasons why. First of all, the fact that they were eager to let Jesus in the boat. So many times in our lives when we're going through problems, we don't want Jesus to be involved. We get so caught up in the problems of our life. It's like, I'm so mad at God right now. I don't want him in my life. Are you kidding me? That's like you sitting in the boat. It's storming. Jesus is walking on water. He's like, hey, I know you can walk on water. I don't want you in my boat. Are you kidding? Please get in my boat and stop the storm. But sometimes, again, because we allow doubt and everything to get in between us and God, we sort of push him back and say, don't get in my life. I don't need you right now, God. But the disciples were ready for him to get in the boat with them. And then you see what happened next? Immediately, they were on the shore. Immediately. Remember, they were three and a half miles out. Either that is the fastest rowboat ever or is something more than that. I don't know. It was amazing. It was a Star Trek beam me up moment, right? They had been working so hard and being on the shore. One author said this, Jesus wants us to work hard, but he never wants us to work in futility. Their work had not been a waste, but it waited for the touch of divine power and presence. Sometimes we can't see where we're going. We're just working hard, but we know that Jesus wants to help us get there. He's got a plan for us. We may not see how it's going to unfold, but he says, I want you to keep at it. Don't give up on me. In the book of Psalm chapter 40. Verse 5, it says this. Oh, Lord, my God, you perform many wonders for us. Your plans for us are too numerous to list. You have no equal. If I tried to recite all your wonderful deeds, I would never come to the end of them. What is it that God's got planned for you that you right now you're saying, that's too difficult. It's too hard. 
I'm, you're like that, the disciples in the boat rowing and rowing, fighting the winds. Like, I know he said to go across the lake. I know God called me to do this, but it is difficult. I know I'm supposed to be kind to that person. I know I'm, God's called me to be a missionary or a teacher or a doctor, but it is so hard. If God's called you to be a missionary, he will help you be a missionary. If he's called you to be a teacher or a doctor, he will help you no matter how difficult the situation before this church was planned, Jenny and I felt God was calling us into the ministry of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Here's the thing. We've got to go out and raise our funds. Not just for us, our office, resources, everything. We had to raise $100,000 before we could actually start up. In the process of that, we're part-time, no insurance, three boys, a family. We've got to feed the family. How are we going to do this with a part-time salary and no insurance? We sold things on eBay. Cut corners in every way we could cut a corner. And it was not easy those first couple months. It really wasn't. Matter of fact, I remember the time when Jenny ran into somebody out in the parking lot of a store. And they said, hey, how you doing? And she started to tear up. And she tried to be strong. And like, it's okay. God's good, you know. But they could sense that it was a difficult time for us. A couple of days later, we got a call from Brookview Farms. And they're like, hey, your meat's ready. We're like, what meat? We didn't order any meat. Uh, you've got some meat here waiting for you. Okay, thank you. But we didn't order any meat. Like, well, you didn't order meat, but somebody butchered a half a cow or half a steer for you, and it's ready for you to pick up, put in your freezer. And we were like, just drop to our knees and say, thank you, Lord. See, we're like those doctors back in the early 1900s, you know, couldn't pay us in money, but we got chickens and eggs. We were good, right? And steak. I saw Phil. Anyway, I can't mention chicken. I got to mention beef too, right, Phil? Yeah. But God took care of us in those days. He was watching out for us because here's the thing. If God's asking us to do ministry, he's going to take care of us and get us to where we need to be. So what do we learn from this? When we look at this story, I believe God wants us to be holy. And the process may be through blessings and the process may be through a refining process. Here's the first thing. Jesus is watching. He sees you. Just as he was up on that mountain in the midst of the darkness and the storm, and they were so far away, they wondered, where is he at, right? Jesus saw them. He sees you. Whatever it is your storm is today, he sees it. He knows it. Psalm 139, 7 to 10, Matthew 10, 29 to 31, great verses. Check them out, read them. They talk about how you can never escape from the presence of God. He not only sees you, he is with you. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus was talking to his disciples and said, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, that I am with you even to the ends of the earth. Jesus reminded them, listen, I see you, I am with you. You're not alone. In the midst of your troubles and trials and storms that you're facing, you're not alone. And here's the last thing. Jesus comes to you. He comes to you. The disciples were in that storm with no answer. They can't save themselves. Jesus came to them and he comes to us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works. Otherwise, we would boast. The grace given to us is grace given to us. We didn't earn it. We can't row our way through the storms. We need Jesus to save us. Romans 10, 9 says, If we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved. Have you invited him into your life? He sees you. He's with you. And he comes to you. 
will you let him in your life? Like the disciples, let him in their boat. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. As they're coming forward, would you please stand? Church, I, I don't know what storms are going on in your life right now. I don't know if you feel like God's refining your life. Where you're going through some troubled times. And maybe your life has been heated up. And he's pulling out those impurities. And it's sort of a rough ride. But understand this. It is a process of making you more holy as God is holy. And I know that storm was scary. It scared heaven right into them. And I think about the fact that there is a heaven and there is a hell. And I'm telling you right now, I'm all about heaven. And I hope you are too. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I'm going to be very blunt with you right now. Your eternal destination is hell. Maybe nobody's ever been blunt with you like that before. They should be. And I apologize if we never have ever said that before. Because we've got the answer. Jesus Christ. You need to know him. He loves you. He died for you. And he wants you to know him. To not know him is eternity in hell. And as a church, we should always be quick to tell people that. Not that they're going to hell, but that we want them in heaven. They need to know. You love people, right? You love your family? You love people you work with? Do you love them enough to tell them the truth? The truth is, they need Jesus. Just like you and I need Jesus. We're no different. We're not better than them. We just got the answer. And we need to share that answer. Because if we're not sharing the answer, we're being pretty selfish. If you say you love somebody, then love them. Love them with truth. And do it in a way that's not condemning let them know you love them. You love them enough to care about them. You want to tell them about a God that loves them. And if you're here this morning and you've not heard that until just now, I'm sorry that this is the first time that you've heard it. But I'm glad you heard it. This is your moment right now to ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. Invite him into your boat, so to say. Invite him on in. He loves you. He loves you. No doubt about it. He sees you right where you're at in your storms. He's with you every step of the way. And he says, I want to help you through this. It might be a little bit stormier, a little bit more longer in your life, but I'm going to be with you every step. Every wave that crashes up against you, I'm right there with you and I'll wipe it off. I've got you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. What an amazing God you are that you love us so much that you would send your son to die for us. God, I just pray right now as you are in our life, working through our life and sometimes these storms are like a refining process and they get heated and it hurts but it is so good to be purified, to become holy as you are holy. I can't fully maybe understand that right now but someday we will. But God, I'm more concerned about the person in this room right now that doesn't know you, that doesn't have a relationship with you. And I know on the back of our bulletin it says, if I want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, how do I do it? Right now, here's how we do it. First of all, God, we're going to admit to you that we are sinners. That we've messed up, we've made mistakes. We're just going to pray to you right now. God, forgive us of our sins. 
forgive us of the wrong things we've done. We've all made mistakes. I've made mistakes. God, forgive me. God, come into my life. I'm confessing with my mouth right now that I need you. I can't do this on my own any longer. Be my Savior, Lord. Be my Lord. I want to obey you. I need your help. So give me your spirit, Lord, to live for you. God, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for answering our prayers. Thank you for coming into our life and giving us the strength to make it through each day. God, help us go live for you now. Help us to share this truth with others. We love you, Lord. We want to sing to you. We want to sing to you, Lord. Before we sing, if there's somebody in this room, all heads bowed, all eyes closed. Okay? There's somebody in this room that's like, man, I just, I, I've never asked Jesus to come alive. I, I, I needed to pray that this morning. And you prayed, and you asked Christ to come in your life. I'm going to ask you to come forward, meet me up front. There's nothing better than letting everybody know that you are different, that you've made a decision. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's something to be excited about. And you won't have people looking at you, pointing up, people looking at you, celebrating. So if you've made any kind of prayer this morning, would you best Christ come to your life? I'm going to ask you to come forward as we sing this last song. Heavenly Father, we love you. We want to sing to you now. What an amazing God you are. In our name we pray. Amen.